as quick as possible. I'm just incredibly busy today, Johnny. I've got to do another Zoom at four with um, John Cleary in New Orleans, and they were wanting three o'clock, and I said, no, I've given over three. So Ah, can I start with asking where you are? Yeah, I'm sitting in uh, my council flat in uh, Peckham, south-east London. Peckham. Has it been gentrified? Uh, bits of it. Not where I live. My mm. area, um, it's the Elkin Road, and it's um, mm. a very Nigerian neighbourhood. still... Um, the hood, man. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, the Peckham is, is where Rio Ferdinand comes from, a brilliant soccer player. But I, I lived yeah, he in. Came from the estate opposite mine. There's a little plaque honouring him on the next estate to mine. Hmm. Uh, so, in the way that you have gone around the world, the world is now at your doorstep oh, in Peckham. Yeah, it is. It's a good place for. Um, yeah, I mean, London itself is very international. Peckham is very African, very. Uh, Irish traveller community. They have um, Caravan Park, a few minutes walk from where I live. Mm. There's um, all kinds of people, you know. I mean, on my estate, there's Italians and Kiwis and uh, Scots and English Wicked. and Irish, you know, all kinds, as well as lots of uh, West Africans. A lot of my neighbours are from Nigeria and, um, you know, that region of the world. Very nice people. So it's good. That is wicked. So does that mean you hear lots of kind of high life music? and afro beats coming out of various afro, windows afro beats you hear all the time man you just you know it's it's i, but I was down in um bex hill to see my stuart last week and i was in my um airbnb with my girlfriend and she said it's that afro beat we could hear it from one of the houses bex hill is a white pensioner town afro beat is everywhere mm. mate it's even in bex hill now <laughs> so yeah so i mean lots of reggae obviously from the jamaican community dance hall and stuff and um Always lots of African music, and there's a very good jazz uh, venue, the Crypt in Camberwell. I go to regularly, see great live jazz. It's one of the things that's changed in the area. There's a lot more music happening. When I first shifted into Peckham in the early 90s, there wasn't a lot of nighttime activity. You had, obviously, um, clubs for the young Jamaican community. You know, other than that, it was old men's pubs and stuff, you know, the kind of last vestiges of the only fools and horses Peckham, mm. which is on now. Oh, that's a shame. But all things must pass away. You mentioned Marty Stewart, um, and that's partly why I've got you into the music library, because you interviewed him before I went to see him. And he was brilliant at The Long Road. I saw him. I've seen the fab- They were fabulously superlative, as you would expect. But Marty Stewart, for those who don't know, is one of the ambassadors for the entire genre. And I can tell you one thing. His music is not... Botox music with no vision or soul. Yep, Marty Stewart, he's playing um, country music and I guess you'd say elemental rock and roll and that and um, he does it really well. You know, I've seen him several times and he's just, he's a great performer. He leads a wonderful band and um, they make beautiful music. Uh, You describe music, by the way, that is... um... An extract, one of the best sentences in More Miles Than Money, Journeys Through American Music, which I found very cheaply, actually, in foils in Charing Cross Road. I don't know if you'd actually put it there, but it's got this wonderful cover of a bloke playing a snare drum kit and a harmonica and a guitar player. Is that Chicago? No, it's um, Sonny Boy Williamson, and it was taken on the streets of um, Arkansas, where he had his King Biscuit Time radio show. Chris Strowich, uh, you know, the founder of Ahuli Records, took that photo when he was down there in the early 60s. So uh, that was Sonny Boy, you know, as in Rice Miller, the second Sonny Boy Williamson, literally, uh, you know, playing on the street for the local people. I apologise, but I claim ignorance. It's a great book. 
and thank you for writing it. Um, it um, and you wrote it having disobeyed Charlie Gillett, whom you dedicate the book to. Charlie seems to be your North Star. Yeah, Charlie. Well, I read him when I was a child in New Zealand, Sound of the City. Sound of the City. It was pretty kind. And, um, you know, I knew of his stuff. I used to buy secondhand music mags. This is way before the internet. This is the 80s. So you, if you wanted to find out about old music, you had to either find secondhand books or secondhand music magazines. And there used to be these magazines called... Uh, Let It Rock and Cream, but not the US Cream, a UK, very completely separate editorial, everything. Cream in the early 70s that had kind of long features and essays and had people like Charlie and uh, Clive James, when Clive was obviously a young newbie. You know, these guys are writing serious stuff on American music, as well as bits and pieces on the stones and that, you know, of what was happening. But really, I think these mags were set up to, to the enemy and Melody Maker and that. And Charlie's stuff was brilliant. He was, you know, writing on Dr. John and Harold Batiste and 50s rock and roll, rhythm and blues and that. And then I got here and he had this Saturday night radio show on BBC London, which I used to listen to religiously. And then at a gig one day, um, I saw him standing there and I walked up to him and he just played a OMC, that Kiwi band that had one big hit, Al Bazaar. Uh-huh. He played a, one other song um, right on from their album, which is just a lovely piece of, Music. I said, oh, you know, back home we call it Polynesian soul. And the next week he played it. Said, oh, I met Garth, and he said, it's uh, this is what they call Polynesian soul down in New Zealand. We just became mates after that, you know. So he was always someone that inspired me. And once we became friends, you know, he was very encouraging, and you know, as someone like a mentor of sorts, we mm. could discuss things and ask questions. And so a lovely man, and and obviously, you know, he just had really wide open ears because you know it wasn't just American music by. 90s, he was playing music around the world. So we talk about Algerian music or Balkan music or West African music, or whatever else. You know, it's all that kind of what people call folk or roots or ethnic or terrible. Global, global music is the term that I think the Grammys use. I call it Globo FM um, yeah, or oh, non Anglophone music. And, and Honest John's Records in um, Ledbrook Grove, they have a section called Alter National, which I thought was really good. Yeah. yeah. I think alternational music, you know, the stuff that's not really on the mainstream pop, rock, rap, soul kind of um, dance music, you know, um, whatever else, you know, playlists, um, but stuff that's made by people that just sounds good and has a bit of a groove and a bit of soul. Yeah, yeah, that kind of stuff. Oh, I'm, I'm so sad that we can't get Charlie Gillis in the music library because he passed away 10 years ago, I think. I did. Um, I was a student up in Edinburgh and the professor of music was Simon Frith, who was one of the um, creators of music as a, a discipline that you write about at academic level. And I think the best music journalism comes from being kind of objectively subjective and more miles than money journeys through American music is that um, you're being tired of being told it's gonzo, but it's... It's subjective. You are on a Greyhound bus going to all these places. Uh, while railing against what you call muck America, you go to Burning Man, which you are, you are so, it's anthology worthy. You're so fed up with it. You just want to leave. Uh, dust, drugs and techno of Burning Man. It's Burning Man, I must say. I think some people go just to see all the topless women there because mm. it's one of the few places in America where um, people can take their clothes off and wander around without being arrested. I think that's maybe part of the appeal for it, but there's no, there's nothing really to recommend Burning Man. It is a dreadful experience. It's there, it's yeah. there if people want it. But what I love about this book is that every character 
has a story. You, uh, I played to my partner. Do you know that song Wooly Bully by Sam Sham? No idea about his history. What an amazing chance meeting. Because you, it was a chance meeting, wasn't it? Or did you have to send letters and emails to people oh, like no, Billy Joe Shaver? I got to Memphis and I wanted to meet um, Sam the Sham because I knew he was an interesting character. So I just asked around because I was aware he lived outside of Memphis and that. And eventually someone, and it may have been the people at the Soulsville Museum, uh, you know, that which is, t- you know, where the old Stax studios used to be, they may have had his contact details. So then, you know, I just rang him up and he was like, sure, son, come out and visit. This is the address. So so it wasn't a chance meeting. Some There were some chance meetings, but I, I had ideas in my head of people I wanted to talk with because I knew either their music fascinated me or, or their stories were going to be interesting. I mean, Mabel John just died a few days ago. Yeah. I just heard that. I got to interview her and I think, why did I speak to Mabel John, who was wonderful? I just think, again, I knew that she lived this very interesting life, you know, and, and without ever, ever having much success, you know, she never, you know, was in any sense a big R&B singer or that. And it must have been Ace Records who told me, because they reissued Matt Abel's um, recordings that... Uh, stacks that she was in LA and and you know this is how some people you couldn't contact uh you know I really tried to find Andre Williams when I was in Chicago and you know I had even had Bruce Aguilar of Alligator Records on the case but Andre was too underground time to be found and that so you know but everyone in there to a degree other than say in Mississippi and that where I'm talking to real local blues people and that that's just because I was hanging out in Clarksdale and so you get introduced to people but people with um you know a, a body of work like Sam the Sham or Charles Wright or Mabel John I, I reached out to them whether it was through the internet I think Charles Wright has a website so I think mm. I'd, I'd email his website Sam the Sham I was in Memphis and I, I really wanted to try and meet him because I knew you know he stood outside the Memphis thing which is you know whether it's Sun or High or stacks or um, any of that kind of stuff. You know, a fascinating character. I had to, for some reason, you know, again, probably years back, read a bit about him, how, um, you know, given up music and gone to work on the oil rigs and was a Mexican-American. But until I sat down with him, and the same with all these people, really, I mean, until you sit down with them and they start talking about their lives, you really have no idea. Because I chose people that weren't interviewed over and over. You know, this is why there's no Willie Nelson or... B.B. King or people like that in there because, um, you know, wonderful as those musicians are, they are interviewed really, really regularly. So um, I wanted to get the people whose stories hadn't really been told. You know, Sam the Sham. I don't think you can find an interview with him or Charles Wright really anywhere else. Maybe some little website or fanzine, but they're not out there in the books, you know. No, and that's why I'm so glad I stumbled upon this. I also, when I was reading about Nashville in your book, you mentioned Tootsie's Orchid Land, where all the songwriters wrote. Chris Jansen has a cameo, and I went, ah, Jansen, who still is a thin, weedy, harmonica-playing guy who got his start at Tootsie's um, in town. So that was um, a lovely cameo in this book. The, your, your theory, Garth Cartwright, is that... The less joy there is in music, the less joy there is in life. Do you still hold this theory about 15 years after your picaresque tour around America and its music? Oh, yeah. I think it's one of our problems, you know, why you could say, you know, the world. And it's not just it's not just the UK, is it? It's, 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 it's a wider problem. Yeah. It just seems dysfunctional. It's many reasons. It's obviously way bigger than music. 
You know, I mean, a lot of it we could put down to nationalism, laissez-faire capitalism. When music gets corporatized and kind of brutalized, it's like if you end up living on fast food, if you end up just eating McDonald's and stuff from Deliveroo and stuff like that, uh, it, it just kind of blands out your taste buds and, and, and the pleasure in eating and, and discovery. And I think that's what's happened to, to a degree with, you know, music becoming such a, a, a huge industry, such a huge money-making uh, thing. And um, when it was more vernacular, more regional, mm. more provincial, um, it was a lot more fun, a lot more interesting. And I think that's for everywhere. You know. And watch how I'm going to pivot here. You wrote a book uh, very recently, which um, also looks at the vernacular and discovery. Going for a song, a chronicle of the UK record shop. More interested in London's record shops with photos by Quintina Balero. Um, was it her idea to take the photos? How did you um, pair up? Because London's record shops, they are, or they were, ten a penny. They're now kind of six a penny. In 2020, in the break between um, lockdowns, Quintina, who's a Spanish photojournalist who was living in London and a friend of mine, decided to do a book together where we celebrated the shops that had survived lockdown. And that's because really, you know, all books have um, a word count that the publisher gives you. And, and with going for a song, I went way over the limit and then I had to cut back. So I really had to chop out uh, the last section where I talked about the great shops that exist, you know, today after the big crash of Virgin and um, HMV and... Uh, you know, the chains that were gone and, and also a lot of the independent shops like Dub Vendor and that that were gone. So um, I wanted to do one that was just beautiful and, um, you know, it was a re really easy reading, kind of a coffee table book, really, a quality coffee table one. And, and first, Tina and I went down to Brixton to, uh, oh, what is the name of that shop? It's, it's the oldest reggae shop in Brixton, one of the oldest in, um, in the UK these days. It's been there since the early 80s. Lovely guy called um, Wally runs it. And she just got on so well with the old dreads and, and that, and her photos were so great. I thought, right, we can really do a book. Oh, I'll just guide you around, Tina, and you just, you know, take the photos. And, 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 and she's a fantastic photographer. So, you know, the first book told the story of how the British record shop rose and fell, and, and then it's, you know, what's surviving since. And the second one, London's Record Shops, which is what it's called, it's on the History Press, is just a celebration of... Um, you know, whether it's Rough Trade and Honest John's that have been there for ages or these new little shops that are popping up. There, there has been an amazing number of, you know, kind of little niche record shops popping up, you know, because obviously you can't sell millions of CDs as once Tower and Virgin and such did. So um, now the people running, you know, record shops are often, yeah, they're really passionate. They're really enthusiastic, quite eccentric as you have to be, I think, to be in the record shop. Oh, for trade. sure, yes. Right. Super time, make a lane. Thank you. And Wally running up. Yeah, Lion Vibes is a relatively new place, a shop. It's in, a, it's in the cupboard arcade that they now call Brixton Village. That's gentrifying for you. Yeah. It used to be the grand, where there's always historically been little record shops going back to, it seems, you know, the 40s and that. Super time, it's a great shop. Make I will have to go. I'm going to go because my, my knowledge of reggae doesn't really stretch beyond the obvious. My knowledge of jazz... And I'm 34 and a half now, so I'm of prime jazz age. Not quite Richard Williams' knowledge of jazz, but you have written the text. You wrote 20,000 words for the complete illustrated history of Miles Davis. You say only Louis Armstrong matches him as an influence on you. Do you prefer the birth of the cool vintage Miles, the kind of blue modal era, or the weird era of bitches brew? 
if you had to pick one? Oh, no, it'd be kind of blue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, Miles, I'm interested in everything he did up until that kind of mid-70s. So I can listen to Bitches Brew, Jack Johnson, On the Corner, but I only listened to them in um, small amounts. They're a bit too dissonant for me. Yeah. And I think they're interesting for what they are, you know, and amazing players on them and some really good stuff. But I'm definitely not one of those people that loves um, extreme fusion or free jazz or stuff like that. I like uh, still some beauty to the music, you know, that it still has that kind of just that sense of um, – beauty and the sense of melody and exploration and, and that oh, I'm not definitely um, someone that likes you know huge mashups and um, when it gets into skronk as Mr. Bond yes. bangs used to skronk I remember Pharaoh Sanders came to Edinburgh and someone was raving about him and I wrote this review and I listened to it and I was about 20 at the time and I thought nope there's no tunes I don't I don't like this maybe one day I'll wake up and like olives or whiskey I'll like it but no, I, I prefer my jazz smooth and uh, with tunes. But I was really captured by um, Freddie Freeloader and So What and, and that. Um, jazz is now going through, it's, it's never gone away, but the schools are producing a lot of great jazz players. Are you, uh, do you go off, you said you go to a jazz club. Have you seen all the kind of new kids Kamasi Washington, I know he's American, and the, the UK equivalent, Seb Rochford. The, the, there are so many new guys on the British jazz scene. You'll know them. Yeah. Um, some. I'm not seeing Kamasi. I heard that triple CD he debuted with when it came out, which must be about five or six years ago. And, and, you know, you could tell he was a quality player, but it didn't do a great deal for me. It was a bit too much, you know, like anyone that releases a triple CD. Mm. You know, it's like, uh-uh, mate, you know, you need some editing here. And... Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot going on in, in the UK with jazz at the moment. And, you know, there's, there's beautiful players and it's great um, the energy levels. and that. Not all of it appeals to me, but, I mean, I'm just, I just think it's, you know, it's fantastic that there are so many, you know, youngish people because obviously it's not just 20-somethings, you know, ranges right through. The people I went and saw on Friday night, um, I was... Um, a white South African uh, pianist and harmonica player, uh, Adam Glesser, who's uh, been over here for quite a while. Used to play with um, Dudu uh, Putkin, I think his name is, or Putkin, who was an exiled black South African uh, jazz musician who I have some records by. But, you know, he led a beautiful band. Um, guys in the, from their 20s up to there, I guess he's probably the oldest. He's probably early 60s late 50s but um i do just go and check out jazz and and um you know it's a very exciting scene at the moment in the sense that it's just wide open you know there's a lot of good players there's a lot of people interested listening in mm, you know what yeah. i'd love to see a comeback of rockabilly i think the problem with rockabilly is such a limited you know um format so you know you do have people who can play it well but there's not much, you know, they can do it. That's why after the Stray Cats, I'm old enough to remember when the Stray Cats hit when I was a teenager, but nothing really, you know, and they were really fresh. You know, Brian Setzer was a great guitarist, you know. I mean, he really took, the, you know, the genre forward and and that. But since then, I mean, and the Cramps at the same time doing yeah. their kind of sucker thing. But I think because it's just, it's just, again, both those bands, Stray Cats and the Cramps, they ran out of ideas really quickly. Because it is a kind of... Um, it's like punk rock, you know, it's a lot of fun, but there's only so much you can do with those three chords and uh, three minutes. Or well, jazz, 
you know, it's really wide open. You've got people bringing in, you know, um, you know, like I said, a Friday night's band. Adam Glasser was um, bringing in all this beautiful South African jazz and who was playing and, um, and then other people are bringing in Afrobeats or dub or, you know, I mean, it's the great thing about jazz, you know, because it started out way, way back in New Orleans, you know, as, as elements of blues and field hollers and marching bands and, and stuff. And, and, you know, it's kind of there are no rules, which is the exciting thing about it, I think. You've just reminded me that you wrote a word that we can't now print, um, talking about how famously Johnny Cash was banned from the Opry because he wanted drums on stage, and you print the reason that was given, um, which I can't say, nor can you. Music is about race and class, like most things in the world. And I wonder if we're seeing this kind of erasure of genre stratification, so everyone likes everything and can stick it in a playlist and... The CDs in HMV are alphabetized now, not by genre. I don't know if you've been into HMV recently. I don't know why you would. But they have a whole rack of CDs at the very back, and it's not divided by genre. So you have kind of, like, I don't know, Arctic Monkeys brushing against Art Blakey, uh, and it's very weird. But I don't know if we can move beyond race and class in music. Maybe if you see it live rather than on record. I don't know. I mean... Race and class exist, and that I think in music, I wouldn't say they are the defining boundaries. I'd say it's just, you know, it's that classic Duke Ellington quote when he was asked what kind of music he liked, and he said, There's only two kinds, good and bad, and I like the good. I think that's it. You know, good music, whether it comes from, you know, Ethiopia or New Zealand or, you know, the Solomon Islands or, you know, Texas, it's good. You know, I'm interested in hearing it. I don't set up that thing of, well, it has to be made by a person of this race or this class or that. It's the industry that, really, you know, invented things. That's why, you know, genres got called first. There was, you know, hillbilly or old-timey for what became country mm. music and race, what they called um, African-American music, you know, because of, for the race, that's what they used to describe. You know, if you were using the rude words, they'd be saying, you know, that's how they described the African-American population, yeah. the race, you know, and so they were... You know, that's that why race records and that was what the charts were right until I think Jerry Wexler came up with the term rhythm and blues. Yeah. Which is and why which is why it's so interesting that the biggest successes in the rock era were the white acts doing black music. Daryl Hall and John Oates, who deserve much more praise than they already get, they were mates with all these black guys in Philadelphia. The Beatles played with Billy Preston and they knew a lot of black acts from the circuit. The mixing of the hillbilly and the race was the exciting stuff. And that's why, because you've, you've written about Led Zeppelin before, uh, and they nicked a lot of stuff from well, Memphis Mini and others. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, musicians have antennae. They're, they're mm. always listening. You know, a musician that's not listening is going to be a pretty dull musician after a while. And, um, you know, Louis Armstrong is just such a great example of someone that, you know, came from absolute poverty and, and just heard the music on the streets around him. But obviously throughout his life, uh, kept his uh, ears open. And I think, you know, towards the end of his life, he was doing beautiful stuff like uh, that Bond theme. We have all the time in the world. And also, I believe he, I've heard a recording of him doing, I think it's Farrah Sanders, uh, creator has a master plan and that. So, you know, he was always attuned. And, and there's a great clip, I don't know if you've seen it, where he goes on Johnny Cash's um, oh, no. TV show. Oh, no, I haven't. And they, re 
they recreated the recording he made, him and Lil had, um, made with, um, you know, his second wife, made with Jimmy Rogers back in the, um, when was it, late Twins? 1920s? Yeah. yeah, I put it on the More Miles soundtrack, you know, Tech, uh, Blue Yodel number nine. That's one of the reasons someone like Armstrong was so gifted and had such longevity because, you know, he was open to music and he developed. And, you know, I mean, these days, because things are so corporatized and we are, so nostalgic, at least, you know, white Americans and Europeans and that, that will literally go and see Rod Stewart and the Rolling Stones and stuff do their greatest hits year in, year out. But, uh, you know, once upon a time, music moved fast and, and you, you know, you had to adapt or you got forgotten and that. And musicians are always listening. That's what's happening in London jazz at the moment is, you know, young people are coming in and they're open to stuff and, and and London's always been a really international um, city. So, again, the jazz scene here, if you look right back to the 30s, was musicians coming from all over, musicians coming from the colonies, you know, from Africa and West Indies, and obviously mixing with you know all these British and Irish musicians and such. So it's always been developing, and that's how skiffle obviously yeah. developed. That's obviously rock and roll in the U.S. developed, as you mentioned, you know, um, all those guys like Elvis and Carl Perkins and Julie Lee were listening to, you know, rhythm and blues at the same time as they were hearing all this um, bluegrass and country stuff. You know, when things fuse together, uh, it can make some really interesting results. And, and thank God you documented it in, um, in, well, in all your writing. And there's a website which lists everything that you've done, including some poetry... Uh, which I'm about to get stuck into. I was going to read them last night, but I wanted to talk to you first and then have a go at them. Um, we haven't got time to talk about Sweet As, Journeys in a New Zealand Summer. Um, but And I, I can't mention anything political with you, which is a shame because you've got to go off elsewhere. But you remember the sea shanty about 18 months ago? The sea shanty became prominent. I hope that gypsy jazz and gypsy folk is going to come back into fashion. Princes Amongst Men, Journeys with Gypsy Musicians, was your first book? Yep, that's right. And you travelled through Serbia, Bulgaria, Macedonia and Romania. Um, this is even earlier than jazz, the kind of early European 20th century folk song uh, accompanied by a fiddle. And it's still there because it's folk tradition. What was the critical reaction to your work because it seemed seems anthropological as well as ethnomusicological so it seemed like a very academic book oh no i wrote it as a road trip again i mean and it's not just fiddles it's you know the balkans is a the balkans is like the u.s south it's an incredibly volatile region hot and cold and corrupt and dangerous the romani people the gypsies exist in the same way that kind of african americans really exist uh, in the U.S., in the sense of, you know, very marginalised and at, at the bottom, much more so even than African-Americans, you know, they just, very few of them get any kind of um, right. status in yeah. politics or that. And their music is all kinds. There's amazing brass bands, you know, that goes back to the Ottoman tradition of Ottoman marching brass bands. There's you know, people making contemporary electronic pop music and that cholga and turbo folk and stuff. And, you know, there are outfits like Taraf de Haiduk from Romania who essentially were akin, I guess, to what happened with Buena Vista. You know, old guys that had been isolated through communism were just, you know, extraordinary musicians playing, you know, folk songs and such like that. But, um, yeah, it's rich. I mean, I wrote it because I was just so interested in the area and the music. And, again, no one had written anything on it. 
And, uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to come out at the time when there suddenly was, you know, this interest in Balkan music. And now you had bands like Ferreccio Calier and Tarafta Haidu's winning, you know, wide audiences internationally. Um, it's been the most successful of my books, actually. It got translated into French and German. So, oh, wow. You know, yeah. Yeah, there's an international audience for that kind of stuff. And I still get people contacting me about it and asking questions about musicians and such. And handily, there are compact discs available. Are they available through the website? Do you have like a box of them or are they in a warehouse somewhere? I don't sell anything. No, you have to uh, go and find the books and the um, CDs and anything else um, at places that do sell them. You know, like Ace Records did the More Miles and Money CD. They'll sell you a copy. Ashot Tango, a leading Berlin uh, label specialising in gypsy music. They did the Princes Amongst Men CD. They'll sell you a copy. That's wicked. Uh, what are you going to do next? Oh, I'm just grinding out the freelance at the moment. So I'm working on a piece on uh, Dr. John. He's got his posthumous album dropping at the end of this month. And so I'm going to talk to John Cleary after speaking to you, who uh, plays on the album, John Cleary, the pianist. I'm not going to uh, get you away from, from Dr. John. I'm fascinated by this album. So um, I will make sure that uh, I listen and I will dip in to your catalogue and your poetry. It's at gulfcartwright.com. It is. I don't know if the poem's any good. I don't even know whether they're still up there. Man, that, that's a long time ago. You know, their website, it shows that <laughs> I don't even got poems. I must have once thought of myself as a poet. My God. No. Uh, well, that, and they're all printed out and they'll all be available in the music library, along with going for a song and uh, London's record shops and Sweet As. And thank you very much for um, packing me into what must be a horrific freelance schedule that you're working on. But you're popular. Popular is good. Well, I'm just working hard, really. Um, when you get the work, when you freelance, you take it. And at the moment, it's been coming through. So um, I have to do it. But, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I meant to that. As long as, you can, as long as you can get to your jazz on a Friday night in southeast London, 